Welcome to the Cheyenne Vineyard Podcast, bringing you a message of hope for your everyday world. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. It's good to see your faces. I usually stand in the back, so I look at the backs of your heads at the first part of the service. <laughs> and Jack says you look better from the back. I like to see your faces. Well, Jay and Joy, and I believe Phil and Tasha are uh, returning now from Utah, where they've had a few days to play, get re- refreshed. So, um, I'm going to share the word with you this morning. I'd like to ask that you pray, first of all. Um, get your heart ready, because this is not your typical um, feel-good message. Um hope I don't offend anybody, but um, you might be a little uncomfortable. So Holy Spirit, you're the comforter. We ask you to comfort us in our discomfort. God, I ask that you would anoint me today to, to speak your word. Father, we want you to come and move among us and do what you want to do. So I pray for this body that we would receive your word today. God, I pray that you'd enable me to deliver what you put on my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our culture today, it has become increasingly unpopular and politically correct, politically incorrect, rather, to mention God or the Bible in public. Have you noticed that? Applying biblical principles to issues such as abortion or same-sex weddings often brings out angry responses from people who do not share our biblical worldview. No matter how lovingly or graciously we share God's truth with people, their response is often to accuse us of discriminating against them. There's a rabbit trail there I'm going to avoid. Okay. So while we're told that we must tolerate, accept, and even approve of behavior which violates God's moral standards, the same people refuse to tolerate us when we disagree with them. Okay, I still won't go there. (laughs) All right. First Liberty Institute is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated solely to protecting religious liberty for all in America. They began documenting the rise of attacks on religion in 2012 in an annual report called Undeniable, which was subtitled The Survey of of Hostility to Religion in America. Now, in 2012, they cataloged, cataloged over 600 instances where religious liberty was threatened or suppressed. The 2015 edition identified 1,285 attacks on religion in the United States. In other words, attacks on religion doubled in just three years. So we see the trend. Kelly Shackelford is the president and CEO of First Liberty Institute. He said the religious liberty of Americans is under attack like never before. These attacks are coming from all directions against America's churches, in our schools, in the military, and in the public arena. Here are just a few examples I'll share with you. Aaron and Melissa Klein closed their bakery after the state of Oregon, fined them $135,000 because they politely declined to help celebrate a same-sex wedding ceremony. Kelvin Cochran, the former fire chief for the city of Atlanta, Georgia, was fired after writing a book on Christian discipleship that included a section supporting a biblical view of marriage. Joe Kennedy a high school football coach in Bremerton, Washington, 
was fired by his school because of his personal private prayers at midfield after games. Lance Corporal Monifa Sterling is a U.S. Marine who was court-martialed in 2013 for refusing to take down a Bible verse she posted in her personal workspace. In February 2015, sixth grader McKenzie and the rest of the students in her class at Somerset Academy, a public charter school in Las Vegas, Nevada, were assigned a project to compose PowerPoint presentations called All About Me. The presentation was to include a slide with an inspirational saying important to the student's identity. Mackenzie's Christian faith is a central aspect of her identity, so she planned to use a Bible verse, John 3.16, as her inspirational saying. However, the teacher told the class they could not use Bible verses or quotations from the Book of Mormon on the inspirational sayings slide. When a student Going on to another example here. When a student asked longtime substitute teacher, Walt Tutka, I believe his name is pronounced, where in the Bible a famous quote could be found, Walt pulled out his personal Bible and showed the student so the student could look up the quote at home. When the student said he did not have a Bible, Walt spontaneously gave his Bible to the student to look up the quote, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Eventually, after being suspended by the school's principal, the school board voted to terminate Tutka's employment. One more example. In October 2013, the city of Bel Air, Texas, issued a written citation to Rabbi Gabriel Jacknan of the Bel Air Jewish Center for holding small religious meetings in his home. The meetings included anywhere from five to 15 people. Does that sound like a life group to you? I said earlier there are 1,285 attacks, documented attacks on religion in 2015. So what I've just read you is just a very, very small handful So in light of that, what does the Bible teach us about how we should respond to this kind of hostility? Let's look at the third chapter of Acts. We're actually going to read Acts 3 through 5, most of it. I'll skip some of it. But I want to draw out some points that will illustrate the answer to that question. So in Acts chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms? And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention expecting to receive something from them. Praise God he didn't get what he expected. Because Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Just a quick aside there. This guy's never walked before. It says immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Now this isn't on the subject, but do you realize how miraculous that is? You don't do that. You have to learn how to walk, right? You have to go through physical therapy, right? No, not if God gets involved. All right, verse 10. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. 
And I want you to see the response of the people. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the layman who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is Solomon's, greatly amazed. Now, how would you have felt if you had seen this miracle? Would it have captured your attention and made you curious about how this man had been healed? Sure would have me. When Peter saw the response of the people in verse 12, it says, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Is that an example of how to win friends and influence people? Is that politically incorrect? Is that in-your-face confrontation? And his name, verse 16, through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So Peter's explaining how this took place. But he's also confronting the people. And in verse 19, we see why. In the rest of the message, Peter's preaching about the crucifixion, about the resurrection, repentance, and forgiveness. And in verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So Peter is using this occasion to preach the gospel to them and confront them about their sins so they can repent and turn to God. Now, keep in mind, the people are pretty excited about what's just happened. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it tells us that as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed. Another translation says annoyed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them. Not this way, but more like this way. That's the uh, use of force verse in uh, Acts chapter 4. They laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So why did they put them in custody? Chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. In other words, they were losing their following, and with it their prestige, social influence, and financial support. So going on in verses 5 to 7, there's a conflict between the religious leaders of the Jews and the apostles. It says, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? You could say, who gave you the audacity to act this way, to speak these things, to do these things? By what authority do you do this? In fact, the Amplified Translation says, in what name, that is, by what kind of authority did you do this healing? You see, what the apostles were doing and teaching was a challenge to the authority of the Jewish leaders. The true spiritual power and authority of Peter and John was exposing the lack 
of power and authority in these Jewish leaders. So Peter answers their question about who had given him authority to speak and heal in verses 8 to 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of or authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." So Peter's pretty clear. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who gave me the authority and the power to do this. Verse 13 to 16, there's a, a dilemma facing these Jewish leaders. They say, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So the dilemma is, what are we going to do with these guys? What's their solution? Read the next couple of verses. It says, But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak no man to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now do you see the parallel between what I was giving you earlier in the examples and this? They didn't want the movement to spread any further. They wanted it stopped. But how did Peter and John respond to the, this intimidation? Verses 19 and 20 tell us that Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They were telling these leaders that God's authority was greater than theirs and they were going to follow God. The leader's response was recorded in verses 21 and 22. It says, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Now, what did they do? What would you have done? You'd just been called before these leaders and threatened. Well, verse 23 says that they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And notice the church's response in verse 24. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, please help us. Please protect us from all these evil people. We're scared. Right? No. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. You see, they knew several things. They prayed in unity, first of all, acknowledging that the Lord was their God, that they were under his authority and that he was the all-powerful creator. They believed their God was bigger than the forces opposing them. 
And then they quote in what I just read in verses 25 and 6 from Psalm 2. They're praying Psalm 2. And in verse 27, then they apply it to their specific situation, and they say, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And did you catch that? There's just a short, quick aside here in verse 28. You see, these guys, these religious leaders are thinking that they are in control. But in reality, they were fulfilling the Father's plan without even realizing it. Now, what I want to get to is in verse 29 and 30. Look how these guys pray. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They were fully aware of what Peter and John had gone through. But rather than be intimidated into silence and disobedience, they were willing to risk the same persecution. So how did God respond to this prayer. Look at verses 31 to 33. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There's a lot more in those three verses than I can unpack today, but I want to focus on boldness, great power, and great grace. They had asked for boldness, and God gave them the power and grace to speak the word of God with boldness. They'd asked the Lord to stretch out his hand to heal and to do signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. I believe it's logical to think that the great power and great grace enabled them to heal and do signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. Now, we're not going to read the rest of this chapter or the first 11 verses of chapter 5, Right now, you can read that later. I'd like to pick up the story again in verse 12 of chapter 5. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So the apostles and the church were still not intimidated into silence and disobedience to God. They continued to preach the gospel of the kingdom and do what had been brought past persecution on them in the past. Now in verse 17 and 18, the conflict with the Jewish leaders was again stirred up, where it says that then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands. There's that phrase again. It's a use of force situation again for those in law enforcement. They laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. It would be easy for a person in the position of the apostles to fear that they had gone too far this time and that now they're really in trouble. But how did God respond to their mistreatment? 
amazing. Verses 19 to 20 say, At night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So he sends an angel to break them out of jail. And then he tells them to do exactly what they've been doing. Keep on doing what you were told to do. Now, again, how would we respond if this happened to us? Would we run and hide? Or would we obey the message given by the angel? Verse 21 tells us what they did. It says, when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. Back into the fire, okay? So as you might expect, the Jewish leaders were surprised when they didn't find the apostles in the prison until someone came and told them in verse 25, look, the men whom we put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. They're doing what you told them not to do. So the apostles were then brought before the Jewish council, and the high priest asked them in verse 28, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Didn't you get the point? Look at verse 29. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. Rather than men. They understood that they should obey the higher authority when there was conflicting direction given. Because there was a clear conflict between what God had told them to do and what these religious leaders had told them to do, Peter boldly told them that they were going to obey God rather than them. He goes on in verses 30 to 32, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered. By hanging on a tree, him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Again, that's not exactly politically correct speech. These guys have the power to have these guys beaten imprisoned, but they're going to stand in their face and say, you murdered Jesus. Well, when they heard that, the religious leaders in verse 33 were furious and plotted to kill them. They probably would have killed them if one of their own council members named Gamaliel, who was a teacher of the law and respected by all the people, hadn't warned them in verses 38 and 39 And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Well, the result of Gamaliel's counsel is in verse 40, where it tells us that that they beat the apostles and again commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. Then they finally let them go. Well, the story ends in verses 41 to 42, where we see that they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They refused to be silenced even after being threatened, beaten, and imprisoned. So how should we respond when we are beaten, jailed, fined, fired from employment, or even threatened with death for obeying God rather than men? We should ask God for grace to endure persecution and be faithful as they were, regardless of what we have to suffer.
That's an important point. I want to say it again. We should ask God for grace to endure persecution and be faithful as they were, regardless of what we have to suffer. I don't know the future. I'm not sure how all the prophecies and revelation are going to be fulfilled. I don't know what's going to happen in our country. Just yesterday, there was a great gathering of over 100,000 people praying that the revival that was prophesied 110 years ago during the end of the Azusa Street revival would come. And we would see a third great awakening in this country. If that doesn't happen, I believe we're going to be facing similar kinds of persecution ourselves. So we need to remember the words of Jesus. Apparently the apostles did. I'm going to read it to you from Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, that's exactly what Peter and the apostles did. They rejoiced, and when they were exceedingly glad, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, Jesus didn't shy away from this subject. He's taught many other scriptures that I'm not even going to go into, into today, but look at Matthew 10. In verse 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body. He was acknowledging that there were those who could kill the body and, and very well may kill the bodies of his followers, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is, is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, it's far better to lose our physical lives than to lose our souls. Just a few verses later, verses 32 and 33, Jesus very clearly said, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We need to consider well what he said there. Do you remember what Jay taught was a week or two ago about the word falling away? As I recall it, the word actually means stepping aside to avoid the consequences. Is that what we're going to do? If you remember verses 32 and 33 here, I don't think you're going to want to do that. Jesus said in Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is part of the great reward we will receive in heaven if we're faithful. I believe as we face the possibility of persecution in the near future, developing an eternal perspective will help us remain faithful. Paul said in Romans 8.18, 8, 
I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. When you are feeling pain, when your life is about to be snuffed out, you're about to be executed in whatever way they choose to do it, whether it's ISIS beheading you or some other form of execution, keep that in mind that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So I think there's a spiritual preparation that we all need to engage in. However, there's another example of Scripture See, I don't think there's anything wrong with avoiding or overcoming persecution if we can. And please still please God, still be faithful to God. And I would say that in America, one way to do that is to exercise our rights as American citizens. Paul did this in Acts chapter 22, verses 24 and 25. Those verses say the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. In other words, interrogated with torture to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? You see, Paul was saying, I'm a Roman citizen. You shouldn't be doing this. Now, our problem today is many of us don't even know what our rights are. For example, a person who can tell you what five rights are protected by the First Amendment is rare. In fact, this morning I'd like to just try something. How many rights, in the, can you remember the First Amendment? We'll look at it in a minute, but how many rights can you list that are enumerated there? Anybody give me one? I'm sorry, what? Okay, uh, freedom, but specifically of what? Speech? That's the Second Amendment. Freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, peaceable assembly. Somebody say the press. Okay. And one last one that we don't engage in very often, the right to petition our government for redress of grievances. In other words, you can write your congressmen, your senators, your city council members, your, your uh, county commissioners, whomever, <coughs> public officials, and say, I think this is what needs to happen. You know, I'm, I'm concerned about what you've just done. And I think you need to do this instead, and here's why. Okay, so that's petitioning our, our government. So let's put up the First Amendment. I'm pleased that you could all come up with those. That's good. All right, the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, if you notice, the First Amendment clearly places restrictions on Congress, but does not limit the individual's rights. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now the phrase respecting an establishment of religion meant 
that Congress was not to establish any one denomination as a state church. Do you know that many of the colonies had state churches? But the federal government was to be prohibited from having a state church. Why? Well, remember that the pilgrims and others fled several European countries because they had been persecuted by the state churches for practicing their faith. And in fact, here in this country, before we became the United States, some of the state churches in the colonies persecuted believers of other faiths. Now the next phrase is, or prohibiting the free exercise, uh, free exercise thereof. This clearly forbids Congress, and by implication, the entire federal government from prohibiting the individual from freely exercising their faith, which includes their rights of conscience. Now, John Jay was one of the three authors of the Federalist Papers. President George Washington appointed him to be the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. John Jay wrote, Every member of the state ought diligently to read and to study the Constitution of his country. By knowing their rights, they will sooner perceive when they are violated and be the better prepared to defend and assert them. But if we don't know our rights, we won't realize when they're violated and won't even consider defending or asserting them. I would also say that if we think our government gave us our rights, we will not have the courage to stand up for our rights when they're violated. The Declaration of Independence is a truly remarkable document written primarily by Thomas Jefferson. The second paragraph begins with these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now here we have a government document which clearly acknowledges that there is a creator who created all men equally, or equal. It goes on to say that we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Now the word inalienable means that the rights came from God not from government. In fact, one of our founders said that those rights are antecedent to all human government. So the first human government was in Genesis chapter 9. So the rights of Genesis 1 through 8 are the ones that are unalienable. Government has no legal authority to deny our rights. Now, they're doing it on a regular basis. But that is partially because we don't recognize when our rights are being violated or we don't have the courage to defend and assert our rights. You see, the Declaration tells us that governments are instituted among men to secure our inalienable rights. Government is to protect the rights of the individual, not violate them. How then have we come to the present crisis in which the power of government is being used to prohibit the free exercise of our religion or punish those who do follow their conscience rather than the dictates of a government that has forgotten its proper role? Well, I believe a quote by Thomas Jefferson sheds some light on that. He wrote a book called Notes on the State of Virginia in 1781. 
In that book, he wrote, Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God, that they are not to be violated but with his wrath? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Jefferson said that the only firm basis of our liberties being secure was a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God. But as our culture and our nation have turned away from God and we have excluded him from our public schools and universities and increasingly all of public life, the firm basis of our liberties has crumbled. Kelly Shackelford, again, the president and CEO of um, First Liberty Institute, reminds us that the good news is even though the number of attacks has risen, the Constitution hasn't changed. Religious liberty is still our first foundational freedom. And when Americans stand up for their rights, they can win. You see, when we stand up for our rights and win, we preserve those rights not only for ourselves but also for our children and our grandchildren. But if we do not stand up for our rights, we and our descendants will lose those rights and live under a tyranny far worse than our founding fathers fought to free us from. So how do we do that? Well, if we're threatened with legal action in the courts, or if, for example, we're unjustly fired from a position, or there's some other government action, for example, the Kleins in Oregon who had that $135,000 fine, I, I just shake my head at how totally unreasonable that is. But if there's something that's done against us, we have a right to pursue this in the courts. And there are several legal organizations like First Liberty Institute who will represent us in court at no cost to us. That's possible because people across the country contribute to those legal organizations in order to enable them to defend our freedom. Now most of us have a strong dislike for conflict or controversy. We prefer to live in peace. But I believe the time has come to speak boldly and publicly in support of God's standards of morality and even just to preach the gospel. By the way, The American gospel has been twisted. It's been perverted. We want to preach that you can come to Jesus without repentance. That God's grace covers all sin, whether you've confessed it or not, whether you've come into agreement with God about that sin or not. But God's holy word is still true. When God says that something is an abomination in his sight, that's exactly what he means. And we need to make sure that we understand that we preach the whole gospel, the whole counsel of God, not what is politically acceptable. We can fill churches with thousands of people if we want to compromise God's word. But we can't do that and have God's favor resting on us.
that when we speak, we need to do it lovingly, graciously, and wisely. But I believe we must speak. If we fail to speak now, we will soon lose the right, the freedom to speak and the freedom to exercise our religious convictions. The character of the American people as a whole has been degraded, which is part of our problem. I'm not sure if we have the national will as a people to do what needs to be done. Patrick Henry once said, Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what, what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The patriots believed that it was better to die on their feet than live on their knees. At this point, I'm not talking about taking up arms against our own government or any other such thing. It's not necessary now. But we must act in line with what I've been saying while we can. Or the time may come when use of force is our only option. God forbid it. I hope it never happens. But we've got to wake up, people. We can't keep burying our heads in the sand. There is a force behind all of the intimidation and threats that come at God's people. Ephesians 6 tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There is a spiritual force coming against the body of Christ. That is the spirit of Antichrist. Many of the things that I've discussed with you today are manifestations of that spirit. You see, the the Apostle John, even in the book of 1 John, said that the spirit of Antichrist was already in the world at that time. So to be against Christ, that spirit is continuing, if you will, to grow in our country. But we need to know who our God is. If we believe that our God is the creator who made heaven and earth, if we believe what the Bible tells us about his power and his authority, you see, the Bible says that he is king over all the earth. When Jesus comes back, he is going to reign as a man in Jerusalem over all the earth with a rod of iron. So keeping that in mind, I think we need to make a firm decision 
my own declaration is this. I will not bow to a spirit of fear because my Lord has given me a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. I will not be silenced. Now you may or may not want to make that declaration with me. It's not a matter of saying it or not saying it this morning. It's a matter of living it out in the days to come. So at the, this particular point in time, I'm not sure we have an application of what I've just taught you. as far as a personal challenge coming against us. However, I would like to show you a four-minute video that will give you another way to respond. See, after the United States Supreme Court gave its ruling on same-sex marriage, how many of you know Andrew Womack? Okay. Andrew's been around 30-plus years, I don't know, maybe Quite a while. He's a Bible teacher who has a ministry out of uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. He is the founder of a Bible college there called Karis Bible College. Um, he's got a radio broadcast that's been going on for years, I think a television ministry too, called The Gospel Truth. Um, I really appreciate his solid biblical teaching. Um, but he was praying after the Supreme Court decision. God, what can we do in response to this Supreme Court decision? And the Lord gave him a declaration that uh, I'd like to share with you. Is that ready? Okay. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortion. The Supreme Court today ruled that abortion is completely a private matter to be decided by mother and doctor in the first three months of pregnancy. Forty-two years ago today, the United States Supreme Court delivered a landmark 7-2 decision that would forever change the landscape of women's health care in this country. And still, four decades later, the national debate over a woman's right to an abortion rages on. A lot of breaking news here this morning. The breaking uh, story just moments ago, the Supreme Court and this landmark ruling, the court uh, making same-sex legal, same-sex marriage legal in this country across every state in this nation. This morning, the Supreme Court recognized that the Constitution guarantees marriage equality. These were two decisions that the world has been watching, but have been watched no more closely than here at the White House, and both coming down exactly as the White House wanted them to. The Supreme Court's decision means gay rights now trump religious liberty. If you think the cultural purging of the southern states has been breathtaking, wait until you see what the activists are about to unleash on American Christians. Churches and faith-based Grandpa, we're Christians, aren't we? Well, of course we are, sweetheart. Does that mean we're in trouble? What that means is we have to get a few good people together and do something about this. That's what this means. The Declaration of Dependence Upon God and His Holy Bible. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. Since our Creator gave us these rights, we, we declare, declare that no government has the right to take them away. Among, Among these, these rights, rights is, is the, the right, right to, exercise to exercise our Christian beliefs as put forth in God's Holy Bible. In God's Holy Bible. We therefore declare that God grants life at conception. God grants life at conception, and no one has the right to take that life unless it is a direct threat to the life of the mother. Marriage was instituted, instituted by, God. by God between one man and one woman. The Lord gave only this family unit the responsibility to have children and raise them in the fear of the Lord. We therefore, we therefore respectfully reserve the right to refuse any mandate by the government. To refuse any mandate by the government 
that forces us to fund or support, support abortion. abortion. We also oppose same-sex marriage, polygamy, bestiality, and all other forms of sexual perversion prohibited by Holy Scripture. We proclaim that Jesus has provided the cure for all sin, and therefore reach out to the sinner in love. Reach out to the sinner in love. In love. In love. But do not embrace the sin knowing its destructive nature. Therefore, we the undersigned. Therefore, we the undersigned. Not, Not only, only as Christians, Christians, but also believing we have the constitutional right as Americans to follow these time-honored Christian beliefs. To follow these, these time-honored time Christian beliefs. beliefs. Commit to conducting our churches, ministries, businesses, and personal lives in accordance. In accordance with our Christian faith. And choose to obey God rather than man. And choose to obey God rather than man. And, and choose, choose to, to obey God. God. All it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Today, I'm asking you to do something. Sign the document. I promise you, together, in unity, our voices will be heard. Jay and I have both signed that doc, that declaration, and um, I'm going to pass out a sheet here. Jojo, would you mind helping me out? Uh, at the bottom of this sheet, uh, well, first of all, at the top of the sheet, the declaration itself is printed, so you can read it again. Um, at the bottom, there is a website that we just went to. <coughs> um, on the website, there are interviews with uh, James Dobson, among others who's also agreed to sign on to the declaration. The hope is that millions of people across this country will sign the declaration and we can present it to Congress, to our president, to other public officials. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and speculate a little bit about something that happened here in Cheyenne. How many of you remember the non-discrimination ordinance that the city council was considering last fall, I believe? Well, Jay went and spoke against it, as did a number of other people. Um, I went, but I wasn't able to speak because there were too many people. Um, they had talked about reintroducing that by Thanksgiving, I believe, but have not. And I suspect that part of the reason for that is that there was such a strong outcry against it. And the votes on the council disappeared. Because normally these votes are not introduced unless they are pretty confident they're gonna win or these ordinances are not introduced. So <coughs> I suspect that what may have happened is that the support from council for that ordinance vaporized because we spoke out. And if we together across the country will take this kind of a stand, I believe it's possible that our government officials might actually listen to us. That's certainly our hope. Now, to wrap this up, I want to go back to what we've been talking about. Obviously, I'm very concerned about our country and the issues that we are dealing with and the failure on the part of the body of Christ to deal with those issues. This is coming to mind, so I'm going to say it. Um, I've got more to say on this subject that I might get to later, but do you realize what a small percentage of the body of Christ are even registered to vote? Let alone actually get out and do vote. And among those who do vote, I would ask how many of us are led by biblical convictions 
we have a presidential race going on right now, and the evangelical community seems to be split between two Republican candidates. I don't really understand that. When you look at the lifestyle and the actions and the statements of one of the candidates who, let's just say his lifestyle doesn't match up with scripture. We don't see the fruits of a follower of Jesus. So I would just encourage us to be praying about that kind of action. But more importantly, is what I said earlier from Acts chapters 3 through 5. We need the spiritual resolve, the spiritual commitment to stay faithful to our God. No matter what happens. If our, if our rights are violated, if we don't even recognize our government as being anything like what was originally intended, we, as followers of Jesus, still need to be faithful. And if that means we pay the ultimate price of Martyrdom? Okay. Send me home. You know, it's not death that I fear. It's the process of dying. <laughs> I don't like pain. So, <coughs> if you're going to execute me, just do it, will you? <laughs> but... I'm trying to make light of a serious subject, but we really need to search our hearts and ask God, where am I really at? Am I faithful to you? Am I loyal to you? Will I be obedient to you no matter what? That's the bottom line question here today. So, I told you earlier, this isn't a feel-good message. Um, but I hope it's one that's caused you to ask some serious questions. And hopefully it'll deepen your relationship with Jesus. Because that's really the only source we have to make this kind of commitment. Is a deep, abiding relationship with Jesus. So, I will stop. But if there are people here today... oh. Feel free to take those uh, sheets and act on those. But if there are people here today who um, would like prayer before you go, we'll have some people available to pray for you. And I uh, can't think of anything else, so I'll let you go. God bless you guys. <laughs>